0: Well, we're returning once again to look at the book of Joshua this morning. If you've been meeting with us here at LCPC for a while, then you know that from time to time we've been following an intermittent series through this book. It's been a couple of months since we were last here. So it's probably worth reminding ourselves that primarily the book of Joshua is a book in the Bible that recounts how God keeps his promises. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God had promised Abraham that the land in which he was then standing would be the land in which his descendants would live. Abraham, though, was a nomad. He was passing through the land is what the bible sometimes calls a sojourner he was he didn't have a home there but god promised that the land would become an a settled inheritance and we call it the promised land for just that reason don't we it had been promised to abraham for his offspring even though at the time he'd been old and had no children Although God had promised that land to Abraham's descendants, God also revealed that they wouldn't receive it immediately. Rather, Abraham was told that his descendants would be taken into captivity in Egypt. And then only after 400 years would God deliver on that promise. Only after 400 years would he bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. Well, in many respects, the closing verses of Joshua 11 are like the closing sections of the first half of a play. The first 11 chapters of the book comprise Act 1. It's the uh, dramatic account of how God brought his people into the land, the promised land. Act 2, we haven't got to yet. The curtain hasn't yet risen Because Act 2, which commences in Chapter 13, is the account of how the people received their inheritance in the land. How they came to live in the land. So this morning, the curtain's about to fall on Act 1. But before leaving this section of the book, there are a few closing remarks which we'll spend a short time studying together. Because these verses that we've read this morning confirm that God did indeed fulfill his promise, the promise that he made Abraham. Firstly, we've got this sort of um, bird's eye view. It's like seeing the picture from a drone, isn't it, passing across the countryside. We have this geography lesson which shows us the extent of the land that the Israelites had taken. But there's more than that, for in these verses, it isn't, it isn't just a description of the extent of the land. More importantly, there's a summary of how Israel came to occupy the promised land. So before we leave chapter 11, we'll pause and see how, how God fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham all those centuries before. And in doing so, there are three aspects I'd like us to focus on this morning. As we look at this passage, we'll see how God worked his purpose out in his own time. Then we'll see how God worked his purpose out in accordance with his own will. And then we'll see how God worked his purpose out in order to keep his Promise. Firstly then, how God worked his purpose out in his own time. Look at verse 18. Joshua made war for a long time with all those kings. When we read through the early chapters of Joshua, it's easy to think that everything was accomplished relatively quickly. It's an exciting story, and it doesn't take long to read those chapters. Perhaps we're tempted to think that these, these events occurred in rapid succession. Well, it's certainly true that some of the events in the early chapters followed each other's quickly. The crossing of the River Jordan, the escape of Rahab, the fall of Jericho, and then the defeat and subsequent victory over the city of Ai. But as we come to the slightly later chapters, we read of successive battles with various alliances of kings and armies. And we would be mistaken to assume that this also happened over a very quick time. Although they only take up a few verses, we're told here that for Joshua and the children of Israel, The defeat of these kings all took a long time. And that raises two questions, doesn't it? At least two questions. The first question we might ask is, well, how long did it take? Well, in chapter 14 of Joshua, we have an account of Caleb receiving his inheritance. And in that account, Caleb reflects... That 45 years had passed since he first came into Canaan, when he was one of the spies to spy out the land. We know that Israel rebelled against the Lord when the spies delivered their report. We also know that for the next 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness. And so we can conclude that the conquest of Canaan took at least... Five years. Five years had passed since the initial extraordinary miracle of crossing the Jordan on dry land. Five years had passed since the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with his people, went before them into the promised land. Five years had passed since the dramatic defeat of Jericho, Five long years of warfare, five years of hard graft, five years of marching, five years of fighting, five years of living in the field, five years of battling to secure their inheritance. And that brings us to a second question we might ask. Why did it take so long? When well, in truth, we don't know. Other than to acknowledge that God, in his wisdom, ordered that it would be so. But in recognizing this, doesn't it teach us something about the Christian life? If indeed you are a Christian here this morning. First, it reminds us the Christian life isn't a walk in the park. Yet you may have times of great encouragement. You may see God working in remarkable ways. You may be filled with joy and wonder as you first realize that God has made a way of salvation for you. You may be overwhelmed realizing that he did so. By giving his only son, his only beloved son, you may be lost for words as Paul prayed for the Ephesians as you begin to comprehend something of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. But you know, for all of us, sooner or later, There'll be a hard slog. For all of us, there'll be times when we have to march through a spiritual night. There'll be cold winds around us because we're out in the field fighting our battles as a Christian. I wonder if that rings true for your Christian experience. You're facing tough battles in your Christian life this morning. You're battling against a besetting sin, something that you struggle to resist. You're battling against an indwelling sin, something in your character, pride, lack of love, a quick temper, a sharp tongue. You're battling against doubt fearing that God's grace may not be quite sufficient for you. Or perhaps you're battling against a coldness of faith, as so many other cares and concerns of the world come pressing in and squeezing Christ out. Friends, this passage reminds us that being a Christian, this side of heaven is not some kind of mystical utopia. Just as for the Israelites, God may in his wisdom require us to make war for a long time as we live out our Christian life. But secondly, this verse reminds us who leads us in this battle. Verse 19 tells us that the Israelite armies engaged in that battle. But time and time again, each victory is attributed to the leader. So in verse 16, we're told that Joshua took all the land. In verse 18, the one we've just looked at, it says it was Joshua who made war a long time with all those kings. In verse 21, it's Joshua who came out and cut off the Anakim. And in verse 23, it's Joshua who took the whole land and then gave it for an inheritance. You see, God brought the children of Israel through their battles under the leadership of Joshua. And we commented in previous weeks that that Joshua is a type or a picture of Christ. Their names mean the same. Their names both declare and mean the Lord is salvation. So God's promise to the Israelites could be depended on, not just because God had promised it to them, but also because God gave them. Joshua to lead them. And Joshua was a faithful leader. In verse 23, we're told that he did according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. As Joshua leads the Israelites then, we see a picture of how Jesus leads us as Christians. Even through the longest of our battles, Jesus faithfully fulfills his Father's will. In John 17, he prays to the Father about his disciples. And this is what he said, Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. And because Jesus could say that, The writer of the Hebrews tells us that he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And because of that, because of Jesus being able to say that, Paul was then able to say, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he will keep me until that day. Friends, isn't that a great encouragement as we face our own long war in the Christian life? God works out his purposes in his own time, but he doesn't leave us alone. Jesus, our Joshua, leads us through each and every battle. Well, we've considered how God works his purposes out in his own time. We now need to turn to the second aspect to highlight in this passage, which is that God works out his purposes in his own will. Let's look at verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You know, there are are some verses in the Bible which we find difficult when we read them. Sometimes the original Hebrew or Greek language is obscure, so it's hard to know precisely what it's saying. Sometimes the context or the background information is is incomplete. So it's hard to know what it means. But this verse, verse 20, doesn't fall into either of those categories. The meaning of this verse is masked neither by obscure language nor by lack of clarity. Why was it? that none of the Canaanites sought peace with Israel other than the Gibeonites? Why was it that they came against Israel in battle and were then destroyed? Why was it that they they continued for five years, time and time again, to wage war against the Israelites when so many others had been overrun by their army? Why did they continue for five long years in their obdurate opposition against God? And the answer in this verse is, is uncomfortably clear, isn't it? It was because the Lord hardened their hearts. This is a difficult verse, isn't it? It's not difficult because it's hard to understand. It's not difficult because it's hard to understand what it means. It's difficult because it's hard to accept what it says. For we're told that God exercised his sovereign power to execute judgment on the Canaanites. God hardened their hearts so that they were obdurate. God hardened their hearts so that they attacked Israel. And in doing so, they were destroyed. This isn't the only place in the Bible where we find a reference to God hardening someone's heart. It happened when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt, you may remember. For there we read in the book of Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then if we turn to the New Testament... We find the Apostle Paul grappling with this same issue in Romans chapter 9, the passage we read earlier, where Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And as Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 9, Paul reminds his readers of two truths. And the first of these we find in verses 15 to 18 in Romans chapter 9. He says to the rhetorical question, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul reminds us here of the nature of mercy. The story is told, um, I heard it many years ago, so I've forgotten the details. The story is told of a young man who was caught up in a rebellion against his government. The rebellion failed and he was hauled before the court hauled before the king. And he was found guilty of treason, of insurrection. He was condemned to die. And the young man's mother came to the court, came to the king, and pleaded for his life. She said, please show him mercy. Mercy. And the king replied, why should I? He doesn't deserve it. And the mother said, but sir, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. You see the point? Mercy is undeserved. And verses 15 and 16 in Romans 9 State that so clearly. God's mercy isn't earned or deserved. God's mercy is the product of his compassion. Go back for a moment to back into Genesis 15 when God made that promise to Abraham. Did Abraham deserve or merit that promise? Was God in any way obligated? to give the promised land as an inheritance? Not at all. Again, it was out of God's compassion that he blessed Abraham in a most remarkable way with this covenant and entered into a special relationship with him and his descendants. Well, perhaps you say, that's all very well. But this all seems unfair that God should sow mercy to some, but not all. Well, the apostle goes on in Romans 9, verses 20 and 21, to answer this objection by reminding his readers of a second truth. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? You see, Paul reminds us here of what it means to be God. In having mercy on one person and hardening the heart of another, God is exercising his divine prerogative this is what it means to God. He was It was his right to make a choice. It was his right as God to have mercy on the Israelites and to harden the heart of the Canaanites. He could have done the opposite if he decided to. God could have hardened the hearts of the Israelites. But he chose not to. It was his right to choose, and his alone, for he is God. And Paul highlights here the reason that many find it difficult to accept that God has mercy on one person and hardens the heart of another. The difficulty is that we as sinful people resent the idea that the potter should have authority over us. But this is sin, isn't it? Usurping the authority that God has over us as his creatures and then trying to lay claim to that for ourselves. So friends, as we go back to Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, you can leave this verse in one of two ways. You can leave angry. You can leave angry that God should have the audacity to make such a choice. Or you can leave humbled. Humble that out of the same lump of sinful clay, out of the same wicked mass of humanity, God should choose God should choose to show mercy to you friends if you are aware of our sovereign god working in your heart please don't spend time asking why god should you choose to harden that person's heart over there The question you should ask is, Lord, why on earth, why on earth did you show mercy to me? Well, we've considered how God works his purposes out in his own time, and we've considered how he works his purposes out in his own will. But now we must turn briefly to our final point, that God works his purposes out in order to keep his promise. Look at verses 21 through to 23. And Joshua at that time came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the land, that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. I wonder if it strikes you a strange thing that having referred so generally about Joshua taking the land and capturing their kings, the text goes on to speak very specifically about the Anakim. Well, we read about the Anakim in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, where we're told that they were giant men compared to the ordinary Israelites. Indeed, when the spies came back out of the promised land, uh, they reported that the Israelites were like grasshoppers compared to the Anakim. But here in Joshua chapter 11, we're told that even these tall men, these giants, were destroyed by Joshua. But there's something more significant still about the reference to the Anakim. Because back in Numbers chapter 13, we read that when Moses sent, the, that Moses sent the spies out into the promised land. And they came back with reports that it was wonderful. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. They brought brat back uh, samples, examples, exhibits of the fruit that they'd gathered there. But although those spies came back with such a good report, 10 of the 12 tempered their report with fear. 10 of the spies thought about the Anakim, and they declared, we're not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we their assessment, you see, was of course made without reckoning on the miraculous intervention of God. It was a declaration made out of unbelief. It was a declaration which persuaded the Israelites to rebel. And it was a declaration which resulted in the wanderings of the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness and the deaths of the rebels. One. By one. So when we're told here that Joshua destroyed the Anakim, we're being told that Joshua defeated the very thing that had caused the Israelites to fear. And doesn't that indicate something of what Christ does for us? In 1 John 4, verses 16 to 18, we read, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See what the Apostle John is telling us. Joshua... Cast out the fear of the Israelites for the Anakim. Our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, also casts out fear. The fear cast out by Christ is the fear of the grave. The fear of punishment for our sins. Friends, if you contemplate death without reckoning on the miraculous intervention of God, then you have every reason to fear. If you're not a Christian this morning, then please do consider your position carefully. Like the Israelites in Numbers 13, you should fear. For in Hebrews 10 verse 31, we read that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for those who are following Joshua, those who were following Joshua, the type, the picture, the pattern, the symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no reason to fear. Joshua defeated the Anakim, and we're told in verse 23 that the land had rest from the war. See, the rover, Joshua distributed the land to the people. At long last, they received their promised inheritance. And once again, we see here that Joshua is a type or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in verse 23 that we read that it was Joshua, the one who, whose name means the Lord our salvation. It was Joshua who gave the land as an inheritance. But although Joshua led the Israel Israel into their rest in their promised land, it wasn't a perfect rest. It didn't last forever. It was just a shadow or a picture of the eternal rest which the Lord Jesus would give as an inheritance to his people. Listen to what we read in Hebrews 4, 8 to 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. See, the writer of the Hebrews speaks not just of the shadow or the picture, the the rest which the Israelites enjoyed in their promised land. The writer of the Hebrew speaks of the antitype, the real rest, which is the inheritance of all those who follow, not the shadow or the type or the picture which is found in Joshua, but those who follow the antitype, the real one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this real rest is the place where we will be with the Lord forever after our battles on earth have finished. His friends is the hope that is set before us as we accept that God works out all things out in his own time. This is the hope that's set before us as we trust that God will work all things out as he wills. This is the hope that's set before us as we follow our Joshua through life, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the hope that's set before us as we trust that God will keep his promise because God has said He who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God who keeps his promises. We thank you, Lord, that we have seen that. Recorded for us in the experience of the Israelites as they followed Joshua into that promised land. A promise made 400 years before was fulfilled. And we thank you Lord that you are the same God yesterday, today and forever. That you are a God who keeps your promises to us. We thank you Lord that indeed, even though we might not understand the timing or the way, we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in that promise that whoever comes to you, you will in no wise cast out, that we then, like Paul might be able to say, we know who we have believed and we are persuaded that he will keep us until that day. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, even though we do not deserve it. We thank you, Lord, that all these things come indeed from your mercy to us, undeserved, from your compassionate heart. We thank you, Lord, and pray that as we reflect upon this, we might indeed love you all the more and give you alone the glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.